Welcome to the podcast edition of Coaching Through Chaos, bringing you what you need to succeed. And now, here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Hi there, and welcome back to my returning listeners. Dr. Colleen Mullen here to present you this week's edition of the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, bringing you what you need to succeed. I bring you interviews every week with guest experts who will inspire, motivate, and empower you. New episodes are launched every Tuesday with an article to go along with it on my blog at coachingthroughchaos.com. We can now be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and of course, on coachingthroughchaos.com slash podcast. We're also an official Bloomberg Radio Price of Business show podcast. So if you're tuning in from the Houston area after hearing me on Kevin Price's radio show, I'm glad to have you with me. If you're joining me for the first time, check out the season one page at coachingthroughchaos.com. You'll find episodes on relationships, finances, addictions, achievement, personal strength, invention and entrepreneurship, health and wellness, and so much more. In addition to all that, once a month, I feature a resource, either a program or an opportunity, just for our veteran population. Today's guest covers a trifecta of topics. It's one for our veterans, our animal lovers, and our inventors. We don't have a lot of time for the intro today because I want to get us right into the interview ASAP. I just want to tell you how thrilled I am that you've been listening. I want to remind you that if you haven't signed up for my mailing list, you should because you'll get a pretty cool gift from me. When you sign up for my mailing list at coachingthroughchaos.com slash podcast, you'll get a free copy of my ebook, Five Ways, 100 Tips for Living a Happier, Healthier Life. Sign up, get the book, and share it with someone you love. Everyone could use some helpful life tips, right? Okay, so let's get into the show. I had such fun interviewing today's guest. Dr. Bonnie Bergen tells us the story of the birth of her life passion, training dogs to help people, specifically our veterans, with physical or emotional struggles. She is the originator of the concept of what we know today as the service dog. She's even developed a canine training academy where a person can earn a bachelor's or even a master's of science degree in canine studies. I'm talking with Dr. Bergen today because of the nonprofit Paws for Purple Hearts program that she developed. Paws for Purple Hearts has locations in both Northern California and Virginia, and they have expansion plans. The mission of Pause for Purple Hearts is to connect veterans dealing with either physical or emotional difficulties that have developed out of their service to our country with a service dog to help them live a better quality of life. Let's listen as Bonnie takes us from the birth of this idea all the way through to their plans for the future. Bonnie, in doing a little research for the interview, I found that you have an interesting claim to fame. You're actually the inventor of the concept of the service dog. Can you tell us about your background and how you came to develop this? Yeah, um, be happy to. I, I want to start out by saying that I knew next to nothing about dog training. It always seems amusing, I think, to people to you know have expected me to be this this amazing dog trainer when I actually came up with the idea. I had my husband and I had a pet dog and we took him everywhere. His name was Socrates, so we were very much involved with dogs. We just didn't know anything about formal training. Uh huh. 
So we went over to Australia and taught there for a year, and then we went through several of the Asian countries. We flew into Kathmandu and went down through India and Pakistan, Afghanistan, and actually through Iran and, and into Turkey and went to London, applied for a job, and went back and taught in Turkey for a year. So we had quite a bit of experience in those countries and saw a lot of individuals with disabilities, but I didn't have any idea the effect it was having on me or the the end result it would have as a result of having seen all of that. I think two of my most memorable moments were watching someone using a donkey to balance on as they took pots and pans down and they got, you know, they unloaded the pots and pans and sat on the street corner and sold them. So even though they were disabled, they were basically a part of the economic community in that country where in the United States, we were institutionalizing a lot of individuals with physical disabilities. So I hadn't seen that in this country. The other thing that was really astounding was I was in a rooftop restaurant in Turkey, right on the main drag in Ankara. And I saw a man literally lying flat on the ground on the sidewalk, but using his elbows to propel himself down the sidewalk. You know, later on, I I recognized that he was a quadriplegic, but at the time I had no idea. Yes. And and then he went across the six-lane freeway. (laughs) I'm sitting there in this rooftop restaurant watching this and just astounded. And then he went all the way across. No car ran over him. And he crawled in the same way. I mean, drug his body up the sidewalk and out of view. And I was looking around and no one in the restaurant besides myself was looking. I mean, it was such a common phenomenon in that country to watch people with disabilities out and about making their way. And so when I came back to this country, I had, again, not really realized what I had seen in terms of its effect on me. But I went into a master's program because we had just passed a law that would mainstream people with disabilities into regular classrooms. And again, I was a teacher. And so I went into a master's program in special ed, early childhood education, in order to prepare myself for this change in the educational classroom structure. And I just sat there and I listened to the other people who knew a lot about people with disabilities and how to work with them. And they were coming up with what they thought were great ideas of stainless steel on the walls to make the institution have less viral or bacterial problems and to cook nutritious meals. And all of that sounded, well, the nutritious meal sounded sensible. The stainless steel was just horrifying to hear because, of course, I was watching and living with and being a part of communities in Asia where they had dirt. (laughs) I mean, the roads were dirt and the part of the uh, people with disabilities were just involved in non-clean environments, but they were involved. They were out and about. Right. To see that they still wanted to sterilize their environment and feed them healthy. You wanted to see them be able to participate in the world. Exactly. That is well said. And so I was very shy. I didn't say anything. And then finally, the instructor said, well, does anybody have any other ideas? And I thought, well, you know, I should mention what I saw in Asia, Mm -hmm. that they were, again, not institutionalized. And I raised my hand and started to say that. And basically, I just said three or four words. I said, in Asia, I saw. And two of the students just yelled at me. I was stunned because, again, I had finally gotten up the nerve to say something. Right. And they said, don't you even mention Asia. In Asia, they let their people with disabilities die. You shouldn't even bring it up. You know, I just was shocked and sat back and got very quiet again and thought, 
what could be done and what could be done to bring people with disabilities out of an environment where people like that, because they both worked in institutions, weren't directing and telling and, and controlling the environment, but rather where people had a chance to make up their own mind and do things for themselves. I don't know why. I can't tell you why. I don't think in things like situations like this, people really know, but I just went dogs. And again, without knowing how to train, without having any experience other than a pet dog, I just went, dogs could do it. Dogs could help these people. And again, I'm, I know I was correlating dogs to donkeys and burros because I actually had the thought that in our, our country, they would never let a donkey and burro go down the street mm-hmm. with you know someone with a disability leaning on them. But it was just one of those things that that was it for me. I mean, that was it. And that's been the rest of my life. And then what did you do once you came up with that dogs could help people? How did you, I mean, because this is now, I mean, I just wrote a letter last week for someone to have a therapy dog with them or a comfort animal. So service dogs is now something that is part of our daily language. We talk about them in regards to all sorts of helping of people. So How did you develop this to make it what it is? Well, it certainly wasn't easy because not only did I not know anything about training, but I immediately went out and I immediately went to find people who train dogs. I went to guide dogs, which is not very far from here. And everyone told me it couldn't be done. Don't do it. Don't try to do it. It's not good for the dog. It's not good for the person with a disability. There's just no way it'll work. And of course, I was totally ignorant, so I thought it would work. Sometimes I guess that's what makes changes in society is you're you're so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't know better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And I have to say this, the reason that they felt it wouldn't work was viable at that time in society and at that particular point in time's people's perspective of the dog. Now looking back, I can see why they felt that way. Then, of course, I just thought, ah, it can be done. I've got to just figure out how to do it. Well, I was a teacher, so I obviously didn't hit kids or give choke chain jerks or do any aversive methods to make the kids in the classroom excited about the subject matter. I mean, I I used very positive methods to encourage students to get involved in the material. At that time, though, dogs were being trained with choke chain jerks and a lot of aversive methods. And that's how dogs were controlled by trainers. So when people were saying that it shouldn't be done, it's not good for the animals, it was because putting dogs through that kind of training would be inhumane at that point. No, actually, I'm going to disagree with that. I think it was that they felt that the person with the disability would not have the physical ability to apply a choke pain jerk or to use those aversive methods that control dogs. Oh, okay. Because they were physically disabled. How could they do it? Okay. So thinking that that was the way to train dogs, they just didn't think the disabled person would be able to train them. And control them. And so you started looking at a different way of training the dogs then. It sounds like you headed to a more positive reinforcement model. Exactly. And that wasn't the the common method at that time. I didn't give up. And don't ask me why, (laughs) because I can't answer that. But I went to disabled programs instead. I mean, that was my next move. And so I called the disabled services here in Santa Rosa, California, and I asked the receptionist to please connect me to someone that wanted to talk to them about an idea I had. And she, being a good receptionist, said, well, can you please give me more information? And I told her what my idea was. 
And what she said to me next was <laughs> quite amazing, given that it changed the whole world in this arena. And she said, I'll do it. I met with her. Her name is Carrie Canals. She was 19 at the time. She was so physically disabled that if her head fell forward, she didn't have the neck muscles to be able to lift her head back up on her shoulders. Someone had to actually come along and pick her head back up. She used a power wheelchair. She couldn't lift anything over an ounce in either hand. She was extremely physically disabled. She obviously couldn't walk and had to be lifted in bed at night and lifted out. And she couldn't caretake herself at all. Right. None of this did I know anything about, I might add. But when I met her, she was just a dynamo. She was just an amazing woman. Girl, I guess is a better way to put it at the time. And we just started. I, by chance, had had a litter of puppies at my home. Ironically, it was a lab golden cross. And so we started working with one of those puppies. I showed her what to do. I used teaching methods, the methods I would use teaching kids. I didn't use the methods that one would use to train a dog. I didn't know any better, in other words. And the dog came along beautifully and started to work for her and do the things that she... She'd ask me things like, can you... When I'm sitting home alone, or I'm sitting at home with my attendant, my attendant wants to go out and get groceries, and she comes back and it's dark. I've been sitting here in the dark because I can't turn a light on. Can the dog be trained to turn a light on? And in my ignorance, I said, sure. (laughs) And so we did it. (laughs) And she said, you know, if I drop the remote for the TV... I have to call the attendant to come in and get it for me. And it's embarrassing. Yes. I don't want to have to keep asking people to do things for me. Is there a way the dog could pick it up and give it back to me? And I said, sure. And so we trained the dog for that. Why not? And (laughs) ironically, each one of these things that she asked for, tugging open the refrigerator door to get her uh, lunch out, and she had a little uh, table in front of her body on the power wheelchair, so the dog could open the door, take out a paper bag with lunch in it, put it on that table, and then she had enough strength to open the paper bag and unwrap a sandwich and be able to eat. And that way she didn't, again, have to have somebody with her 24-7. And that was a big deal. I don't want someone with me 24-7. I want to have some independence. I want to have some opportunities to be with and by myself and do things for myself. Right. That's a huge deal. Those are the same commands that people that are training service dogs all around the world now use. That is just wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. And then you developed why I have you here today is because I found you under Paws for Purple Hearts. And now you're using those service dogs to help our veterans. Can you tell us about Paws for Purple Hearts? I uh, created what's called a university. We're actually accredited by the U.S. Department of Education to give associate and bachelor's and master's degrees. And in that process, one of the programs that we developed was sending trainers out. I did it myself for the first nine years. Mm. We would take the dogs out to the juvenile hall and have kids from juvenile hall train the dogs for service dogs. And it was just remarkable. I mean, it changed these kids. They were gangbangers, two different major gangs. The, the kids would come in and work together training their individual dog. And in fact, one of them wrote this little note on the door, leave your anger at the door, uh-huh. because these kids just got so sold on the working with dogs. Well, when I stopped being that primary teacher and was able to hire someone to do it, that individual correlated the idea of doing that with teaching returning veterans who had PTSD to train the dogs. 
thinking that that would also give them that same therapeutic benefit. And the whole staff got behind it, and we all worked really hard to bring PAUSE for Purple Hearts into fruition. And it's been going on now since 2006. The veterans are getting amazing therapy from the dogs. It's an amazing concept and such good work that you're all doing and what you're providing for the veterans. Can you tell us what are the therapeutic benefits for your clients who utilize the service dogs? Well, I can tell you about Steve, for example. He had returned from the war. He had befriended a couple kids, and then he went out on a tour of duty and came back and, and at some point in this process saw those two kids being hung from a tree because the kids had befriended the Americans. So when he was released from duty and he came home to his wife and one child, when the wife had a second child, all of that vision came back and just hit him. As you can imagine, the context. Right. And so he started drinking and getting into trouble and he and his wife divorced. He spent some time in jail. His life just went down the tubes. Not uncommon, I might add, for veterans with PTSD. Right. And so when he got involved in the dog program, it was like the beginning of recovery. He started to warm up to the dogs. You can't not warm up to dogs. Mm -hmm. And he started to get back into, because the isolation and the the emotional numbness is what had hit him so, so very badly. Working with the dogs and getting in touch with the dogs started to turn that around to the point that it made such a huge difference. And he talks about it a lot because it took him off of illicit drugs. It took him off of prescription drugs. It caused his whole life to turn around. It caused him to start to feel positive about things. PPH, Possible Purple Heart, it's a therapeutic program. We take the dogs in and the veterans with PTSD, the hospitalized veterans, train the dogs as part of their therapy. But the dogs that get trained that are successful are placed only with veterans. So this whole feeling of being back in this buddy-buddy situation that war strengthened so strongly in terms of the military Mm -hmm. came back again because now they were training the dogs for a fellow veteran. And the sense of isolation, obviously, the dogs just don't let you go there. The depression started to lift for him, but the sense of purpose, I think he speaks about that a lot. The sense of purpose came back. His sleeping patterns, and and this happens with almost everyone that's involved in this, they constantly say, when I start working the dog, and, and we do this, as they are training the dog, when their training skills improve sufficiently, the hospitals actually let them take the dogs back to their room to sleep with them at night. The hospitals usually send a nurse in on a regular basis to check to see if these people are sleeping because lack of sleep is a huge issue with PTSD. Yes. And what they find is that they go in the room and every half hour that they walk in, the veteran is awake all through the night. And then what they find is when the veteran takes the dog with them, and the dog often sleeps in, in their bed with them. They walk in and the veteran's asleep. The veterans frequently say, well, the dog's got my back and now I can sleep. Yeah, they can rest more peacefully. Yes. And pain, decreased need for pain medication. I, I'm telling you, legal or illegal, decreases significantly. Service dogs have to be trained to go out in public. So they have to take the dog out in public. And when they take the dog out in public... It's one of the biggest issues is they're not comfortable with people coming up to them, but 
there is a different sense of comfort when they've got a dog with them because people come up to talk about the dog. They walk up and ask about the dog. And that person, that veteran with PTSD is now more than willing and eager to talk about the dog because they've come to love the dog. They're very proud of the training they've been doing with the dog. They want to talk about the dog. And so it allows that person now to start to make contact with the public, something that they were they were not willing to do prior to that. I mean, some of these vets, even from Vietnam, are still living in a house refusing to go out the door because of this horror that they experience and this feeling of isolation. We have people come, we have kids come up to us whose dad or mom has, have been through the program, and they say, thank you for giving me my dad back or my mom back. And we have women who come in to us, wives, who say, thank you for giving me my husband back. Of course, it's not us that did it. It's the dog and the relationship with the dog that did it. The results are just outstanding. I mean, just just outstanding. This is not just our opinion. It's the clinical staff who come to us and tell us what they've seen and experienced. And it's very real. Oh, yes. And it sounds like you have lots of real-time hospital data from all of this and the experiences that you've been through with all the clients. Bonnie, this is great. I'm just going to take a little break and we're going to start again in a second. You're listening to Coaching Through Chaos, your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen, bringing you what you need to succeed. back. When we resume the interview, Bonnie tells me another story of just how much the dogs mean to the veterans they get connected to and how much meaning and purpose they bring to their life. Let's join her now. We had a, a gentleman who was not in our program, but who was being counseled and was very severe PTSD. Just went One day he just left his counselor, went running into the dog program office. He knew about it. So he just went running in there and he crawled into the crate with a dog because he was so in need of some, some way of, of taking away the pain that he was feeling. And then after that, he went in a few more times and got better. You know, he, he started uh, healing. And so then he applied for a dog. He applied to get one as his service dog. And of course, we're always happy to do that. By chance, it was the same dog that was in the crate that he crawled into. Oh. <laughs> now, we didn't do that intentionally because we, because we matched dogs and people, but it, it, was just, it just happened. And when he came out to get the dog, he was still pretty severe. I mean, he, he, was, he was able to function, don't get me wrong, but you know, he, would, he would come into the classroom and he would sit up against the wall which is not, again, uncommon for someone with PTSD, the paranoia, back to the wall looking out to make sure that nobody was behind him and stuff like that. And he, he gets this dog. And when the dog had come, come back to get ready to be placed, the dog had had some scent detection training. This is not uncommon because we want the dogs to have kind of a, a variety of experiences and, and keep them enthused about their learning experience, you know, having a lot of different 
activities to be involved in. But when the dog was placed with this individual, the individual had been put by, by the military into a national park because, again, he, he really wasn't social. You know, he was still suffering from the effects of PTSD. So he was in the park. And so when it came to get the dog, he and the dog went back to the park together. And he was doing his job at the park and a couple got lost in the park. And everyone was out looking for the couple. They were really worried. You know, they felt that it was a dangerous situation and they couldn't find the couple. And so, of course, there was a really heightened concern for the lives of this couple. Going back to this gentleman, uh, the veteran, his dog indicated something to him. And dogs and humans, their relationship and their communication is awesome. Just amazing when you allow yourself to really communicate back and forth with a dog. So he, he knew the dog was trying to tell him something. And the dog took off and he followed the dog. And because the dog had had this scent training, the dog found the couple. Can you imagine the joy that this veteran felt and the pride in his dog and the, and, and the sense of purpose that came out of that exposure and experience that would have, again, helped the PTSD heal just that much more? I mean, it's just, a, I think it's a beautiful story. It is. It's beautiful. <laughs> ah, amazing. For Pause for Purple Hearts, can you tell me about who qualifies? Is it any veteran or is it veterans only with PTSD? Like, how do you select who qualifies for the service dogs? Any veteran with mobility, disabilities, amputations, etc., or PTSD or any other form of combat-related injury qualify. The real limitation is, can they take care of the dog? And so we do have, in the application process, they do have to have part of the form filled out by a, their medical doctors giving us the go-ahead to make this placement. So we don't put up the walls or, you know, if this person does or doesn't qualify, but we get the information from the medical and people that they're involved with. Okay. So basically anybody qualifies that we can feel confident will keep that dog safe and well-fed. Excellent. By that, I don't mean well-fed because that's the number one problem with the service dogs is obesity because people tend to overfeed. Oh. Well, it's the number one problem with people with any pet dog, so... It's not just that population, right? No. Uh, well, you know they they love them so much, and <laughs> they wanna they wanna <laughs> they wanna feed them every time they want a little treat. I suppose. <laughs> you mentioned the university that you have now with this. I think you said it even has a bachelor's and maybe even a master's program that someone can get in training the service dogs. Can you talk? a little bit about the training, like how long is the training of a service dog, what goes into it, and what is the cost of that? Then we're going to talk, I definitely want to talk about how do you all stay funded and who pays for that cost of training? We do not charge veterans for service dogs, period. So there's no fee. If they do come out, there are different organizations that will pay for their flight out to get the dog if they don't live near a center and will help house them. Oh, great. They can get a dog if they don't live near you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
And again, this is we're very cutting edge. I mean, the, the newest and most latest information and research about how to train dogs or how they think or what their cognitive capabilities are obviously is a big part of what we continue to work on on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. But what we do do and what we know is important, ironically, was a study done by the military on a biosensor method. So what we start with is as soon as the puppies whelped, we have them touched all over their body so that not one single neuron in their brain sloughs off and dies because it's been stimulated. And so the veterans in the program actually do that. As soon as the puppies are whelped, they start petting the puppies and touching the puppies and making sure that the puppies are being stimulated physically. Mm -hmm. And then when the puppies reach, and I'm going to say three and a half, but it's really three and a half to four weeks depending on how, how they're developing, as soon as the puppies start to get up on their legs and walk over to another puppy and engage it in a little play, then we know that they have reached that consciousness stage. They're not just still unconsciously trying to get food or sleep or whatever or warmth, but they are now conscious of each other. And so we start training them right then. So it's akin to early childhood education, only I would call it early puppyhood education. (laughs) And we actually start training them to sit, to down, to turn. Within the first four or five days, they have 12 commands under their belts. And by that, I'm talking about by putting a treat in front of their nose and getting them to do it. Mm -hmm. But they're still doing the behavior. And then we stop putting the treat in front of their nose and show them that we have the treat, but we give them the command say we trained at four weeks, at five weeks, they'll actually sit on command, literally. And it's so funny to watch them because you say the word sit and they look at you in your face and then they look over at the treat that you've got in your hand and they look back at you in your face and then they put their butt on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) They want to make sure. They're very clear. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And again, there's research that backs all this, but. Right. So by the time they're six weeks, they're retrieving. By the time they're seven weeks, they're tugging open little doors. By seven weeks, some of them are even turning on light switches. That's amazing. We have these little teeny low light switches that they can (laughs) actually go up to and turn on. I know it's amazing, but they're very bright. And we want to make sure that the correct behaviors are embedded Mm -hmm. so that these are the behaviors that they will do when they're older. And we only train them for five, seven, ten minutes a day. Oh. So we're not we're not overtraining them. The rest of the time they're playing and they're with their siblings and having a good time. But for that period of time, they do have to learn that when they're told to do something, they have to obey. We don't let them get into little fights with each other. We have a playground manager to kind of stop the spat <laughs> uh-huh. so they don't learn to do that. We use generally golden retrievers in labs because, first of all, they're the best retrievers. Mm -hmm. And secondly, because they are so well attuned to trying to please people. We don't use field trial stock or hunting stock because we don't want predatory instincts. You know, we don't want the dog to have a strong drive to chase a cat across the street or something like that. We found with our veterans with PTSD, we have to be exceedingly cautious. And almost any veteran who has any kind of physical injury has some PTSD as well, but certainly some of them have no physical injury and are still stymied by some very, very significant PTSD. Oh, absolutely. When you say just the sleep or going out in public, going grocery shopping for someone with severe, especially combat-based PTSD and being in public like that, 
can be a, a monumental task for some people. So very often I would think that you're providing service dogs to veterans that don't have some physical limitation. It's really the emotional stuff that comes with the PTSD. Exactly. And they get challenged when they walk into a store. Even when the dog has the little vest on that says they're a service dog, they still get challenged, which of course is the last thing we want to be happening because we're trying to invite these individuals who have fought for our country and for our lives back into society and we don't want to make it more and more (laughs) difficult for them. But the truth is when they take the dog in, when they're working with the dog, what we have found is that the dog has to be very gentle, very sweet, Mm non-challenging. In other words, you would think that a strapping 200-pound guy with PTSD could handle a dog that's going to try to chase a cat. But what happens is if they have a severe situation with PTSD, then what you've got is them having to argue with this dog or deal with a dog who's challenging them. And it takes them emotionally back to the war. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have to make sure we give them dogs that do not put them in that mindset. And those dogs are generally very, very soft and sweet goldens and labs. And as I said, not all of them are like that. So we have to be very careful in selecting and breeding for a very gentle dog. Ironically, that's the same dog that we would place with a quadriplegic who couldn't physically do anything for themselves, but who needs the dog to turn the light switches on and pick up things they drop and stuff like with Carrie originally. Mm -hmm. And so it needs to be a dog that's very willing to and wanting to work for that person and not have a bone of challenge in their body, which of course is impossible, but I mean, we decrease it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And this is all with non-aversive training methods. Everything is positive. Everything is encouraging. Everything is building a desire to want to and have a drive to work with people and help people. Yeah, It's pretty exciting to see Some dogs have a drive to do search and rescue because they have a really strong mental drive is the word that's commonly used Mm -hmm. to do something. A service dog, if there's any drive at all, it's just because they want to please the person. They want to be with that person and help that person. Right. And that's what you mentioned, so the retrieving and the pleasing. Yeah. Well, you guys are doing amazing and amazing service to people and providing all that wonderful training. So let's talk about how Pause for Purple Hearts survives. So you're a nonprofit. So does that mean that you survive solely on the goodness of others and fundraising? Or where do, where does your funding come from? Well, that's where it comes from. And there's a lot of people that are really committed to our veterans that are really doing what they can to help. There are some foundations that have been generous enough to make some gifts to us. We do direct mail, and certainly anybody that's interested in helping, if they send us their email address or their street address, we would be sending them the newsletter that comes out, but we would also probably be asking for a gift, and that's always hard to acknowledge because we have to do that in order to get the funds to do the work we're doing, and certainly I believe the work we're doing is critical. It's absolutely critical, and the changes that I've seen are such that I certainly couldn't give it up. Right. And you're doing wonderful work and so needed and 
so well received. I know you've got a new supporter in myself and my husband after today. We uh, we're big animal lovers here. Yeah. And um, <laughs> do you uh, does pause for purple hearts have anything in development? Uh, oh, and I think we missed talking about where where people can find you now. I know I'm talking to you in the Northern California location. Can you talk about where else you are located and where you see uh, pause for purple hearts? Uh, expanding to? We're looking at, and we've had a lot of people come to us from VAs and also from Department of Defense sites. We try to locate near or on the grounds of hospital so that we're able to be incorporated into the actual physical therapy programs with the veterans, which is something that we've been encouraged to do and has been working really well. I mean, right now we're in the process We've just opened Virginia, and that side is often working quite well, I might add. We go down to Poplar Springs, which is not a military hospital, but a lot of the military send their veterans with PTSD down there for treatment. So we've been working there, and we're up here in Menlo Park in California, but we're working really hard right now to open a program in San Diego because, of course, there's a lot of veterans. We want to serve both hospitalized and off-site veterans. And so we're trying to open a facility ourselves instead of be on the hospital grounds, because when you're on the hospital grounds, the off-site veterans can't really come back and be a part of the program. So we're trying to find a location. We're looking at somewhere in the Escondido area, possibly Mm -hmm. another location that makes traveling to the VA and the DOD hospitals easy to reach. But still, because there's such a huge population of veterans that would be coming in and being able to use the services of the program as well. So San Diego is really highest priority right now, and we're working really hard to make that happen. Well, that's wonderful to hear. You know, that's where, where I'm based out of, and uh, we could I would imagine you would be so welcome down here, a uh, service like that. We are a military county, uh, let alone a military city down here, and... Uh, I think wherever you find yourself located anywhere near San Diego, I think you'll have clients for for a long time, and your service would be really well-received down here. So that's getting us down to our last question for today, and I want to thank you again for what a great interview this was, and just you're doing such amazing work. I just can't wait for people to hear this. So how can people get involved, refer, or donate to Pause for Purple Hearts? Can you give us the website or the contact information you would want people to uh, find you at? Yeah. The website is very straightforward, www.pauseforpurplehearts.org. And we are, by the way, licensed by the Military Order of the Purple Heart, which is chartered by the United States Congress. So if anybody wants more trust in who we are and what we do beyond what we're we're saying, I do want to make that point. The telephone number for the staff person here in um, Northern California is 707-238-5110. Usually we ask people to call directly to the national office and then they will get that person in touch with a regional center if they're close to it. The kinds of volunteer tasks that we're looking for, certainly helping raise money is always an issue, but when the litter of puppies are born, we do need people to come in and help touch and pet because the hospitalized veterans don't have that many hours in a day to do that. 
We certainly are hoping off-site veterans will come in and do that, but the puppies do need to be touched and petted. The veterans are the only ones that do the actual training, but certainly the litters of puppies need to be touched and petted. They need the touch. When we're getting ready to have a graduation, of course, we're asking volunteers to come in and help set up the site and bring cookies and coffee for people who attend the graduation and things like that. There's always tasks for volunteers to do. But money is critical. It is absolutely critical. That's what's helping us move towards San Diego. And, you know, my goal is to get San Diego open within the next couple months. So, Oh, wow. Yeah, we're, we're that close to moving forward. Well, I can't wait to see you down here then. And uh, it absolutely feels like it's going to happen for you. So Dr. Bonnie Bergen with Pause for Purple Hearts, I just want to thank you so much. I know you've touched my heart today in listening to your stories about what you all are doing. And I'm sure you're going to touch the hearts of many people listening. So I hope so. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you. Okay. You're listening to Coaching Through Chaos, your host, Dr. Colleen Muller, bringing you what you need to succeed. Bonnie has such passion behind what she does. We even stretched this episode out just to let her passion shine. I want to thank her so much for joining me, and I'd encourage anyone who thinks that they may qualify for a dog or wants to get involved with the program to check out the Pause for Purple Hearts website at pauseforpurplehearts.org. As always, I want to thank Dr. B for my audio engineering and bennettsullivanmusic.com for my theme music. And I want to thank you for listening. If you like what I'm doing here, I'd love for you to leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening from. Those reviews mean so much to me personally, and they help me stay on the ranking pages so that others can find me. Thanks for your support. If you want to follow me between episodes, you can sign up for my mailing list at coachingthroughchaos.com podcast. And remember, when you do that, you'll get a copy of my ebook. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle at Dr. Colleen Mullen, and I always love to talk to you there. And you can find me on Facebook at Coaching Through Chaos. I do hope you're having a great week, and if you've got chaos in your life, I hope you're finding your way through it. Take care.